So this microphone is not for you guys, it's for the computer, just to let you know. So, uh, so, so here is an outline of the talk. Uh, just briefly I'll go over objectives. I'll just give an overview of the most common study design as a clinician. You should you know, understand the fundamentals, the basic, and then we'll focus exclusively on diagnostic accuracy, uh, and then I'll try to summarize, okay? Uh, before I even start the talk, what I like to do is just pass around this paper. I have 10 copies, so if you could share with each other. And what I have done is intentionally blackened out the conclusions, okay? So the goal here is whenever you read a paper, you should, I don't, and you should not read the conclusions because conclusions most often, they are a spin. It's the interpretation of the authors. Sometimes they might be based on the results, but sometimes they might not be, okay? So just, you know, read the abstract, maybe the results, or if you want to look in the detail, and I'm not expecting that you understand every single thing, whatever is there it means, but intentionally I have blackened out the conclusions for a reason, okay? <clears throat> so here are the objectives as well. Broadly, always, whenever we do an EBM talk, there are two broad objectives. One, I call it evidence literacy, okay, and one is numeracy. So one thing I encountered over the years, you know, whenever people throw jargon, I used to get intimidated. Oh my God, sounds so fancy, what does it mean, right? But then you start researching it and understanding, I said, oh my God, that was all BS, I mean. It <laughs> sounded all fancy, but there was no substance to it, all right? So I think that is one of the key things, that once you become comfortable with something, no one can give you the spin or throw you off, okay? So that's why that literacy is important. And at the end of the day, even if you don't like math or numbers, okay, you have to deal with it. So basic addition, subtraction, division. Three things, if you can do it, you can understand what those measures mean. Somebody tells you sensitivity is you know, 80%. What exactly that means? Is it really useful to make any clinical decision? All right, somebody comes and tells you, you know, the post-test probability is this. What does that mean? So that's the goal to take that, you know, fear out, and that's what I call it evidence numeracy, okay? So don't be afraid of numbers. All right. So let me just go briefly. Uh, what are the main study designs a clinician should be familiar with? And here's a big overview. If you take all the research, I'm not talking about those very complex ones. Again, those complex ones are very fancy, but they are not used for clinical decision making. If you do a simple study and there is no effect, no matter how complex you make it, you will not see an effect, all right? Normally, we make it more complex to underestimate the benefits that we are seeing in simple analysis, never to overestimate it. So broadly, if you see, we do two things in research. Either we describe or we analyze. That's the whole goal. When you describe, most common thing during election season or anywhere you see all those surveys, how many people love this burger or that burger, or Trump is up, Hillary down, vice versa, whatever, that's your survey, okay? You will not see a p-value there statistically significant or not significant, all right? Simply describing. And then there is a qualitative research. When we know nothing about a topic, we like to find a representative sample. Generalizability is not an issue. We simply wanna know what's happening within that group, okay? What are the key themes? So that's your qualitative. Again, that is not used for clinical decision making, but just want to show you. When you come to analytic, you can do either two things only, all right? I could, either you can observe, right? Whatever is happening, we are collecting data, so those are observational. Or 
as an investigator, you can inter <coughs> sorry, you can intervene. Okay, so you are in charge of to give the drug, what dose, or any other intervention. That's your experimental study design. Within experimental, there are randomized trial and you know randomized crossover design. So we're not focusing on that today. Within this, you have a cohort study. So here's the patient taking a drug. It's not a trial. You treat patients every day. You simply are trying to collect the data based on similar patients with similar outcome, and simply you see over time what happens. Then there is cross-sectional analytic. Same patient gets both the exposure. Okay, if you are, we are talking all about comparison here, not single arm trial case series. We are not talking about case reports or anything. And then you have a case control study where events have happened. You go back in time and try to find out what they were exposed to. Okay, that's backward. The cohort study can be retrospective and prospective. It all starts with how, whom you're going to sample. If you start your sampling with the outcome, let's say dead and alive, and see what they were exposed to, that's your case control. But if you start your sampling with exposure, which drugs they took and what happened to them, that's your retrospective cohort study, not case control. So the key difference, case control cohort, where you start. If you start with sampling the outcome, that's your case control. If you start with exposure, that's your retrospective cohort study, okay? So again, just to briefly show you, Whenever somebody asks you which study design is the best, never, never raise your hand and say randomized controlled trial. Ask a counter question. For which kind of question? Are you talking about treatment? Are you talking about diagnosis? Are you talking about prognosis? Are you talking about harms? What are you talking about? If they say treatment, yes, then RCDs are the best. Otherwise, you know, different study designs are meant for a specific question. And by question domain, I mean is four. Treatment, diagnosis, prognosis, or harms. Okay, four common domains that we you know, encounter in you know, clinical medicine. And if you pull similar studies, they are considered the highest level of evidence, which is your systematic review and meta-analysis. Okay? <clears throat> so the first question is why diagnostic is complex? Because Unlike treatment, where the goal is to improve everything, in diagnostic, there are two tasks of right classification. You don't want to put the healthy people into the sick group, and you don't want to put the sick group people into the healthy group. So again, that's what we say, increasing certainty about either presence or absence of a disease. You don't want to make mistakes there. That's why it's more complex. Today, we are going to focus on this one. This, if you talk about this, they are not called diagnostic accuracy. They are called diagnostic utility. That once you diagnose one way or the other, what happens, that's a different pathway. So we are not focusing on that. We are focusing exclusively on the accuracy part of it, whether we should add one more test. And test by test, I mean also the physical diagnosis. Okay? So when the patient encounters a physician first, that physician is serving as a diagnostic tool as well. So do we need additional tests? So whenever you read a study about diagnostic accuracy, never think in terms of whether A is better than B or B is better than A. It's not about that. The question should be framed, if we add B to A, does it increase our certainty for presence or absence of a disease? So it's not that B is bad or A is good. It's all about if you add something, 
does it increase the knowledge that we have without doing it? And does it increase if we do the test to what we already know? Okay. So again, these are different uses, but those are utility, not necessarily you know, diagnostic accuracy. So here is a case, very simple. 18 years old male, cough, just add some you know, runny nose, itchy eyes. All right, two weeks cough, feels tired, a little bit fever too. All right, and lung exam is mostly clear. All right, so very simple case, hopefully common primary care case. All right, you suspect some kind of flu going on, right? Again, it's late in the evening, you can't obtain a PCR, it'll take time for the results to come back. And you decide, you know what, let me take a nasal swab and use a point of care testing to see whether it's flu or not, okay? So the question is, you are always suspicious. As a scientist, as a physician, you always be suspicious of everything. That's a good character, you know? To be sure it's not a good character, it's always good to question what I'm doing. So you have heard about all the things, you know, but the question is this, how accurate is the diagnosis of flu with point of care testing? Question is clear, right? With physician diagnosis alone, if you ask, should I do the nasal swab and do the point of care testing or not? So how about, you know, just design a study quickly, one or two minutes, right? And I'll give you a structure how to design it to answer that question, right? Should I use point of care testing or not in a clinical setting for diagnosis of flu, okay? So here is the, every study design in the world, three steps we do it. First, we can't study everyone, so we sample. We either assign or observe, right? And then we count. Some people will have the positive outcome or negative outcome et cetera, et cetera, depends on the context. All we do is counting, right? There is nothing magical or rocket science here. So my first question is, whom would you sample? What kind of patients? Take care you'd be coming with those symptoms. So, so who already have a flu? Or have symptoms. So you suspect flu. Right. So I'm just putting some words there. Suspected of flu, and then what are you gonna do? First you suspected already, so you did your testing. Mm -hmm. Second? So we'll come to that. Let's go in a chronological order. Uh, you're not wrong. <coughs> Let me give you a heads up. So first you said we sample. Sorry? The, so first you, point of care testing, you said, right? And then? And then? The PCR. You do everybody. Okay. Point of care in the PCR and then do the additives, do just clinicians. Okay. So if I understood you correctly, just let me write it down here. So here is anyone suspected of flu, right? So, oh. PCR, I guess that's. So it's okay, that's fine. So here it is. Magic word is consecutive. Don't pick and choose. Anyone who is suspected of flu, you enroll them, right? Inclusion. And then you did the. Uh, point of care, because already you determined here suspected. And then you said you will also do the PCR on everyone, right? So you are getting this two by two table, you are saying. So physician diagnosis, you know, and then you have the point of care, right? Positive, negative, positive, 
negative, and you're trying to put each of them in the right boxes, right? Using the PCR, whatever the PCR gives the results, correct? That's awesome. So basically, you said the PCR is the gold standard here. Since you mentioned the term earlier already, we are ahead. So just I'll give you one update on that one. You are correct, but the jargon is old. So the annals of internal medicine came, they said, don't use the term gold standard. Use the term reference standard. Because a lot of people you know, thought that if there is already a gold standard, why are we doing all this? Right? People conventionally think like that. So let me do this. So reference standard basically is, is done to confirm what is the truth, right? What is the ultimate answer? And another point I like to make while we are discussing this is it doesn't have to be a very accurate test for reference standard. In science, everything is about expected versus observed. You put your bet, this is how I'm going to play the game, and stick to the rule. If you change the rule in between, you know, rules, then it's a bad science. So basically, if you're going to do that, you can create a rule that, you know what, if physician's diagnosis and the piece, sorry, and the point of care came both positive, I'll classify them as true positives. If physician diagnosis is positive and point of care is negative, I will classify them as false positive, okay? And so on and so forth. You can create your own rules and still have a reference standard without the so-called, whatever, in the old days when we used to call it gold standard, okay? So what exactly, just correctly you guys said, is presented in this chart, how a diagnostic accuracy study is done. Most important is, you said the magic word, suspected. Because a lot of people talk about this, you know, when we have done in many sessions like this, and people say, I will take people who are positive for flu, and I'll take people who are negative for flu. And the most important is not only wrong, but while till it's wrong, if you take such cases, here is the first jargon, spectrum bias, okay? So when they say, if you're going to talk about a scale, if you take a scale, imagine 0% is healthy and 100% is sick, let's say for a moment, right? You don't need diagnostic testing for these people or these people. When you do that, you're wasting resources and trying to confirm nothing, okay? Diagnostic testing, that's why I said, is done only on patients when you are uncertain, when you are fluctuating between where they are, then only diagnostic testing is recommended, and that represents the real world. You should not order diagnostic testing to prove your colleague wrong, okay, or to browbeat somebody. It's all about reducing the uncertainty, right? So if you are 40% sure that patients have disease X, you want to increase it to 60%. That's why you order diagnostic testing. We'll come to that. So here is the design. So that's why I put the appropriate patient spectrum. Same patient gets the index test and the comparison test, okay? Everyone should be confirmed with a reference standard, okay? And most important, whenever you're doing, you know, these testing, reproducible means anytime there is a subjectivity where people are interpreting the results, let's say it's not a machine which can be reproduced, Hopefully it is blinded, and hopefully you can repeat it. So if two observers are looking at the same radiograph, hopefully they will report you the kappa statistic that how often they agreed you know, on the results. If one guy said positive, other guy said negative, then again the test is not very reproducible, okay? So 
And whenever it comes to talking about measurements, whenever you have a subjective measurement, has to be blinded, okay? Most famous example I'll show you is, you know, normally in cardiology, when residents are not told of patient history and they do the auscultation, they hear nothing. And the moment you tell them that patient has a history of some cardiovascular disease, they start hearing murmurs, okay? So there are tons of examples on those, how the blinding impacts overall measurement of outcomes, okay? So all right, here let me give you an example on just what I said. So here is a real study published and they were trying to look into you know, BNP concentrations for the diagnosis of left ventricular dysfunction. And what these people did was, you know, they took, again, convenient samples, normal controls, no history of any cardiovascular disease, and they took patients with a history of cardiovascular disease where they had some kind of combination of hypertension, ventricular, ventricular hypertrophy, you know, and left ventricular dysfunction. <laughs> and what they did was, here are the results they reported, Patients with disorder, their mean values were 493, and here is your confidence intervals. And the normal controls was 129.4, which was significantly less than the sick people, let's say. And they concluded, this is their conclusion, that's why it's under quotes, testing for BNP concentration was a useful diagnostic aid for left ventricular dysfunctions. Okay, that was their, should the test be introduced in practice? based on these results? <laughs> it's now, but that time, imagine if you have only this evidence. <laughs> That's true. But they later on did the second phase. So basically what you just saw is kind of similar to phase one testing of drugs. Here you are simply trying to see whether it works in ideal conditions or not. So this is like a phase one. Is it safe? Does it have even efficacy in known things? But again, going back to the issue, this is prone to spectrum bias because the purpose of diagnostic testing is not to confirm who are sick as sick and who are healthy as healthy. Not to confirm, but to assess, okay? So should not be. So what are the threats to the validity of a diagnostic studies? First, like I said, have to have the right sample, sample right? What is the right population or the sample in this case? Again, hopefully you have a spectrum of cases. If you're trying to do a particular disease to diagnose, hopefully you have stage one, two, three, different severity, you know, and, and mixture, okay? And whenever you do consecutive, automatically you will get a mixture, versus if you do selectively, all right? And we already discussed earlier about the spectrum bias, all right? So again, I gave the reasoning here that why it should not be introduced in practice, because again, bottom line of the slide is that test is not done to confirm anything in known cases. That's why that test is not effective, all right? Another thing I said, blind comparison, and we already discussed that because you guys were ahead in giving answers, so we finished actually previously already. So you will see many studies where, let's say there are 100 patients, and they will say, oh, we could confirm only 80 with the reference standard what was the truth, okay? So again, that's a bias because it's a verification bias. If you're verifying something in a study context, you have to verify in every single patient. You can't do it selectively in few and, or use a different standard for others and one standard for remaining you know, subjects. You can't do that. And, and like I said, anytime there is a subjectivity, it has to be blinded. So for example, in the flu case, the PCR is objective, so you don't care about the blinding. But imagine if two physicians have to assess simply symptomatically how often they get it right 
it has to be blinded. You don't tell them what other physician found. Otherwise, it might bias the result, okay? Uh, so I already covered about this one. So why blinding is important. I mean, the whole psychology, cognitive science is full of examples that how if we give us specific information, how our brain changes differently, okay? And the most Im important is this. We like exotic cases so much, we think of those verses which are very common. And it can happen vice versa also. That's how our brain works. It's not that intentionally anyone is, is doing that, all right? Here is the issue of reproducibility. Imagine if the test is so complex that it requires like five years of training to run it. It won't be reproducible. You can't use it in general setting. It looks like a very trivial matter. What's the big deal? Test works, it's reproducible. But think about the consequences, right? That of reproducibility, like if you don't have that expertise or if it's not simple. I mean, we don't have enough time, but I have done this before with a crowd. I'll give you a measuring tape and try to measure the circumference of my head. I can bet with you there will be so much variation on what you conclude just with a measuring tape. Sounds very trivial, what's the big deal? But if you're going to treat a pediatric patient and you're trying to determine you know, whether, how much is the circumference, right? And examples are already there in obstetrics, right? If the measurements of the frontal height can vary up to five centimeter, that decides that how the baby will, you know, will be delivered, right? If you're talking about meningitis, the simple circumference can determine whether the patient, how severe the patient is, et cetera, et cetera. So this example I'm trying to show that whenever you design a study, make sure it can be implemented, okay, easily. And not many people will catch it, but if you have a, such a complex way of measuring it, you know, again, it's not reproducible, and it depends on the context. And that's where you have to think that when, you, when you're designing or you're reading something, how reproducible or how easy it was to interpret or implement in this case. Okay. It's all right. And every single study when you read or you design your own study, make sure they have this kappa values. You don't have to know how to calculate it, but simply it is the inter-rater agreement. Okay? And all you have to remember is this. If it's less than 20%, it's a very poor agreement. If it's et cetera, et cetera, if it's 80 to 100, it's great agreement. And that kind of in indicates how easy or difficult it is to implement something in real world, all right? Let's come to the fun part, numbers, finally, okay? And then interpretation. So here, uh, you know, five things we're gonna cover, all right? So instead of using a more traditional, which you have seen before, the two by two table, I'm not gonna use it, but use a natural frequency tree to understand what all these metrics mean, okay? So here it is, most important, depends on the prevalence. So if let's say prevalence is 0.1, you can increase the sample to 1,000 to make it at least one patient, versus if you have 100, you can't have 0.1 patient. So just to give you a disclaimer, all right? So you start with 100, let's say you have a population or sample of 100, okay? And, you know, four will have the disease, okay? Four people have the disease. It means 96 will not have the disease. So the prevalence in a way is, right, 4%, okay? Simple division, all right? Also, that jargon is called pre-test probability, okay? So why it is important to know pre-test probability? What does it tell you? What does the prevalence data tell you? Why is it good to know about any disease prevalence? 
I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll confess here, first one, I just memorized to pass a test, okay? Never understood the significance before, like why do we need to know the prevalence? Positive predictive value, will, we are still not there yet because we are still, prevalency is pre-test, right? So we still don't know what happened. We'll come to that, right? So it's still pre-test. Sorry, you were saying? So you nailed it. So I use very simple example with fellow students. I said, imagine this is Florida, right now allergy season. A patient comes to you with you know, runny nose, watery itchy eyes, what do you suspect? And boom, they say, flu. No, they say allergy, right? I said, take exactly the same symptoms and I transport you to Alaska, right? Similar symptoms, what do you suspect? Flu. So it changes, right? Depends, so that's why it's important to know because there is always a differential diagnosis, right? There are symptoms overlap. So if you don't know a disease prevalence locally, you're more likely to diagnose it wrong or try to find something which does not exist. So that's why the pretest probability, in a way, what I say, another example I'll give you is this, and that works phenomenal if you're trying to teach somebody. You say a patient comes in and say, do you know what, I feel like some kind of chest pain, tightness in my chest. And I ask the student, what do you suspect? And some will say, am I? I said, okay, tell me how sure you are. And they say, pretty sure. I said, no, no, that will not work. Give me a number. <laughs> Give me a number. And they say, hmm, 40%. I said, okay, great. Anyone suspects anything? They said, no, maybe some good. That's it. I said, how sure you are? They said, 30%. I said, great. So based on pretest probability, same symptoms, right? They're suspecting one is 40% for MI, 30% for GERD. And they said, what do you ask next? So I said, I'll ask, is the pain irradiating? She said, great, fantastic. So patient says, you know what? I, I feel a little bit like going to my back here. This much only information. I said, what happens now? The MI guy says, I will raise it to 60. And GERD guy says, 20 went down, still not sure. Okay, what do you want to ask? I say, I say, hold on, before you ask anything, the patient is saying, oh, do you know what? It was just like a sore muscle. I don't think so. there is a pain. <laughs> you know, no, it's okay. What happened now? They say, goes down, the MI went down to 30. The GERD guy's thinking like, I'm winning now. So what I'm trying to explain is this, as the symptoms flow in, as the test results flow in, the probabilistic reasoning is happening <laughs> And that's where you inform your pretest probabilities before you have done anything. So it's always good to be aware of what are the most common presenting symptoms. In a way, you are making a determination on pretest probability. That's the whole point of the jargon here, right? That is important. So 4% is the prevalence. You're following me so far. And imagine out of four, whatever test you have, you correctly caught three. Okay? So three correctly caught out of four. Right, one is wrong. So three out of four, your sensitivity is 75%. Okay, pretty straightforward. Here are the 96 people, let's focus on that. And what happens wrongly, seven of them test positive. Okay, and remaining were correct. So 89 out of 96, specificity is 93%. Straightforward, okay, all right. And then, if you look at you know, all these uh, negatives, right, among those who test positive, three in 10 
will actually, so if you take seven false positives, right? Three correct positives, how many total positives? 10. Out of 10, how many truly positive? Three. That's your positive predictive value somebody mentioned, right? I remember, I forgot who said that. Positive predictive value or post-test probability is the same thing. So basically, you know, that's your positive predictive value. So test was pretty accurate, 75% sensitivity and 93% specificity. But when you apply the test in a setting, you are only 30% sure that patient might have the disease if they test positive, which is not pretty impressive. Because rule of thumb is, if you are less than 50% sure, it's pretty random. You should not intervene. That's rule of thumb again. Depends on benefit risk and so many other factors, okay? But 30%, right? And same thing you do for all the negatives, right? How many true negatives? So 89 out of 90 in this case, right? Right, 89 out of 90, and that's your, sorry, and that's your negative predictive value, all right? So now bear with me for a moment. What I'm gonna do is, I will change the prevalence. 4% we had before, right? Let me reduce it to 0.4%. Let's take 1,000 people, four will have the disease, okay? So I reduce the prevalence from 4% to 0.4%. Let's look at the sensitivity and specificity. If you do, again, three out of four is same 75%, 926 out of 996, still the same 93%. So sensitivity and specificity did not change. Agree? Same percent you got, right? But look at what happened to the positive predictive value. It went down to 4% from 30% sure to 4%. It means whatever we knew so far, we moved the bar from 0.4%, which was the prevalence or pre-test probability, we could go only to 4%. So the point here, what I was trying to make is, even very sensitive and specific tests don't, don't perform well in low prevalence you know, setting. So you have to be careful when disease is rare, and whenever you have a rep trying to sell you the test, they never talk about positive predictive value. They talk only about sensitivity and specificity, how accurate the test is. So basically I'm trying to show you that even a lot of accurate test, which is the properties of accuracy is sensitivity and specificity, will produce so many false positives or false negative, depending on whatever the metrics are. So always you have to know the prevalence, you know, what it's doing. And negative predictive value is more than 99%. So again, we are not worried that much about, you know, negative predictive value, but always whenever we suspect something, we try to think about post-test prob probability in terms of confirming. And hopefully, when it's negative, that's higher. So most tests perform pretty well to conclude negative, but the challenge is of avoiding the false positives because it leads to a lot of things, right? Unnecessary testing and other things, all right? So bottom line for sensitivity and specificity, even highly specific tests when applied to low prevalence events yield a high number of false positives. So next time when you look at the recommendation by US Preventative Task Force or HRQ about screening, try to calculate the positive predictive value for your setting and you will find the answer that why there is so much debate about screening mammogram or PSA, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, there are a lot of anecdotal stories that saved my life and it's this and that are there which I understand, but we like or don't like it, the whole practice of medicine is based on law of average.
We can't create one pill for one person. We can't create one test for one person. It has to work in most people, which is average. Okay. Two more things. You don't have to know the calculation, but just interpretation of likelihood ratio that I'll show you a moment in a use. So basically, if you read a paper, likelihood ratio of one means the test is not useful, does not add anything to what we already knew. So if you are suspecting something, the bar never moved from 4% to anywhere. It means it doesn't add any value. If the patient is positive, a likelihood ratio of greater than 10 means it's a very strong positive test. If it's less than 0.1, it means it's a very strong negative test. Okay, Interpretation-wise, that's what, here is the formula, okay? But I'll show you the usage, actually. What do, how do we use it, all right? Anyone remembers this uh, picture? Again, the term is Fagan nomogram. It's called nomogram. So I don't know what's in the white course for now, but before it used to be in the white course, the nomogram too, okay? So it's, it's, it's a very useful and simple tool, actually. You can print it on the internet. If you put nomogram, you'll find it. And they have for all kinds, all right? So here is your prevalence or pre-test probability. Mark the dot, so we had 4%. Likelihood ratio was 10.7, right? Mark a dot here, just draw a straight line. It tells you post-test probability or positive predictive value. So it's simple to visualize. We were pretty low in this number. If this number is not greater than this number by huge margin, and I've, why I'm intentionally telling you huge margin is, like I said, depending on the context, that post-test probability will be different, how sure you want to be, okay? So in this case, you see we went from whatever percent to 25% here, sorry, 4% to 25. It's a shift, but still not a great shift to make a decision. So you might need some additional testing. But sometimes you will see, and I'll show you an example soon. So that's the basic, instead of doing all the calculations, if you take the likelihood ratio, the pretest probability, draw a straight line, it tells you what is the probability that patient indeed has a disease, also called post-test probability, or also called positive predictive value. Okay, it's the same thing. All right, you can do the same thing with the confidence intervals, all right? So here you put the pretest probability 35%, you put a likelihood ratio of five, and here you draw the line, and it tells you the post-test probability, including for the confidence intervals. The range of benefits, the range of certainty in this case, okay? So here is the last part of it. We talked about flu, it's very important. So what I did was, I brought you one page paper on this point of care testing, all right? So before you read the paper, you know, right, somebody tested positive, and here is the data, prevalence of the disease or the flu is 40%, sensitivity is 44%, the specificity, I just intentionally twisted it, another jargon, it's the same thing. Specificity, one minus specificity is a false positive rate. So specificity is 97%, right? If somebody tests positive in your setting, what is the probability that patient has flu? Or how sure you are that patient has flu? So in a way I'm asking what is the post-test probability if patient tests positive on point of care testing? Try to do on your own, otherwise you have the answer in the paper anyway. 
three pieces of information you have, sensitivity, specificity, and prevalence. Want to throw a number? Five, 10, anywhere. I have a slide actually. 19% to 100%. <laughs> the whole range of it. I'll show you the solution. How to go in a step by approach. Just make a guess. Can you go back to the sure. This is what you need, three piece. And you can use for any example, like, you know, from, huh? Above 90, okay. Put a number. High, low means different thing for different people. <laughs> more than 90, okay. All right, so at least there is a number. Two of you agree, kind of, more than 90. Okay, he's saying yes, he agrees. All right, three people. Uh, let's not go by majority vote. <laughs> democracy is not good in this case. <laughs> Anyone else has any other number? See, she got a two, diagnostic calculator. You Google it, you put the numbers, it tells you two. <laughs> All right, pick a number, 90. So 99, because I have only 99 here. Okay. All right. But if you have not answered right away, don't feel bad at all. I'll tell you why, because they have studied this. Published in BMJ. Many times, this is a a repetition. Most often people get it wrong because they always try to think about sensitivity or specificity and try to find in between some number. So in these testing formals, they always found a whole range of answers. So let me sh show you how the same frequency tree that I showed you, all right? So here is the information that we have. Prevalence, 40%. <coughs> sensitivity, 44%. False positive rate, 3%. Or specificity, 97%, right? Let's take 100 people, right? 40% prevalence, it means 40 will have the disease, right? 60 will not have the disease. Following me so far? Okay, sensitivity, 44. It means 44% of these people will be correctly caught by the test, right? So. 16 people will be correctly classified as positive, right, in this case. And in false positive rate, 3%, so 3% of 62 people will incorrectly test positive. So 16 plus 2, 18, all right, 18, all the positives. Out of those, how many true positives? 16, right, 89%, okay. So now you know the numbers game and everything before I summarize. Now go back to look at the blackened paper, the conclusions blackened. <coughs> if you quickly take like one minute and tell me between the two compared tests, which one is better? And by the way, this paper was brought to, be my, to me by Sadaf because she was proctoring, doctor, you know, doctoring students. Mm -hmm. And one of the students who is the preceptor there, she said, Dr. Kumar, can you look at this? You know, I think they messed it up, you know? And the student was right, actually. 
So that's why I said, so always when we teach critical appraisal, we tell people always, don't read the conclusions. You should find your own conclusion after reading the results. You're wasting your time when you read conclusions or intro. Correct, right? Okay. <laughs> the paper, actually, the flu paper, they rounded it off to 90% because it was basically 89.88888 something, so I kept it 89%. <laughs> so the CT is better or VQ based on this paper? The results if you read yourself. You can look at the figures even and you can tell, like they gave you a nomogram there too in the paper. It's hot in here. It's okay. I feel without any travel, I'm in Singapore. <laughs> so. so, any take? VT, sorry, VQ or CT? Which one? You can't say both are good. <laughs> there has to be one or the other. Yeah. VQ, right? Numbers, right? So she has a. Do you have a copy somewhere lying there? The clean one? Okay, but it doesn't matter. I have the paper somewhere here. But oh, actually, it's, oh no, it's in my thumb drive. But basically, they concluded totally opposite. They said CT is better. So you can check it out yourself. So this is not the first time. I've encountered so many papers, right? from randomized trial to published in major journals where you will see the spin. So the goal of this talk was this, empower yourself. It's not rocket science, and it's simple. If you make it simple, if you understand simply what is your sample or who is your sample, whether it's done correctly or not, whether assignment or observation is done correctly or not, and whether the counting has been done correctly or not, you can make your own judgment. You don't have to rely on the conclusion of authors, okay? And you will see so much spin. Doesn't matter, scientific journals, you know. If you, if you get time, Google, there is an author called Ionidas. So he's MD who is at uh, California, Stanford. Okay, he's in Stanford. And he published one of the most influential papers where he concluded the title was, Why 98% of Research Findings Are False because you mess up somewhere either in sampling or assignment or observation or in counting. And that's where the bias occurs in three places. And so we can talk a whole, whole day about which bias where is happening, but you will see it all over, okay? So that's why the goal was to do your own math when you see a paper just because something is published. It doesn't mean automatically it's accurate as well, okay? So in summary, First important thing, okay, so one more thing on the first point, that diagnostic studies should match methods to diagnostic questions. So many faculty I have fought with, okay? 
they take retrospective data okay and make a two by two table at the end of the day every single study is a two by two table okay you can calculate whatever you want i can calculate instead of sensitivity and specificity i'll calculate relative risk here okay but doesn't mean it's correct and they tell me that what's wrong in this they take only positives okay and can you calculate sensitivity and specificity i said no he said what do you mean i said don't get me wrong i can calculate but it's wrong i it's wrong thing to do it's not the right method but here is a study they published like this. I said, just because somebody published, I will not repeat the same thing. So again, when you have retrospective data, you can't do diagnostic accuracy because you will not find many patients who went through the same test. And again, and you will not find the reference standard because in real life, patients move on. Unless you're doing a diagnostic accuracy, we don't confirm how often things go right or go wrong unless there is an audit. So it's is not impossible, but it's very difficult to do a diagnostic accuracy from data which is already collected, okay? So again, bottom line is this. The study design is a cross-sectional cross analytic study, and when you're talking about diagnostic utility, that what happens if I test, let's say, self-breast exam versus mammogram, then you will do, because the accuracy is not in question, but the plan of action post-treatment, what happens, then you need a randomized trial for utility, okay? But for diagnostic accuracy, cross-sectional study, same patient gets both the test and confirmed with reference standard, okay? All right, so remember always most important concept, prevalence or pre-test probability, post-test probability, so how sure you are here before the test, how sure you are now after the testing, okay? And again, don't use gold standard, reference standard, reference standard. You cannot decide if a test works or not when you read a paper if every single patient was not given the reference standard. You will see tons of studies like that. Likelihood ratio, so again, it tells you how much your belief towards positive or negative will shift after the testing. That's what it tells you in a way, all right? And most important concept is accurate does not mean it's useful. Okay, a test can be very accurate, but it might produce a lot of false signals, which you don't want because again, the goal is to have that precision in terms of whether the patient has the disease or not, because there are a lot of consequences associated with finding something positive or negative. All right, so that's all uh, I had for this evening. I'll take any questions if you have.